Welcome to CathLab Conversations, a new podcast brought to you by CathLab Digest. In today's episode, Dr. Eric Scott, vascular surgeon in Des Moines, Iowa, speaks with Dr. Ravis Sutcher, interventional cardiologist in Raleigh, North Carolina. Dr. Sutcher shares his experience treating complex lesions and how the recently published 12-month results from the reality study are impacting his practice. The reality study was independently sponsored and conducted by the Viva Physicians. This episode is sponsored by Medtronic. For more information on the reality clinical study, visit www.medtronic.com slash reality study. Let's get started. Welcome, everyone. I would like to uh, thank you for joining us today to this podcast, uh, graciously supported by Medtronic. My name is Eric Scott. I'm a vascular surgeon at the Iowa Clinic in West Des Moines, Iowa. And today I am joined by Dr. Ravi Setcher, an interventional cardiologist at UNC Rex Healthcare in Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome, Ravish. It's good to talk to you again. Eric, it's always a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me and inviting me to be part of this. And thank you to Medtronic as well for supporting this. Ravish, In the time that we have today, we want to talk about difficult lesions, femoral popliteal lesions. We want to focus in on the recent publication, the results of the reality femoral popliteal atherectomy and drug-coated balloon angioplasty trial. So that's going to be the central focus of our discussion today, but I want to start sort of back at the beginning. And I want to ask you, what are some of the toughest femoral popliteal lesions you treat today? In other words, at Friday afternoon at four o'clock, your last patient's going on the table. At that point in the day, what is the worst femoral popliteal case that you might encounter? You know, as endovascular specialists, we treat a lot of patients with low extremity vascular disease. And when we see patients with femoral popliteal disease, and we're able to treat those patients with femoral popliteal disease, it's usually very satisfying. It's satisfying for two reasons. Usually these lesions, patients present with long lesions or, or CTOs. Most of the time we can get through those. It looks really bad when you start, you get a good result. It's very satisfying as a physician to get that kind of result, but it's also very satisfying because the impact on patients is usually pretty significant as well. If they're coming for lifestyle-limiting claudication, those symptoms generally improve uh, relatively quickly. Or if it's part of multi-level disease and patients with critical limb ischemia, treating the inflow uh, makes a big difference for these patients. So these are lesions and segments uh, of the vasculature where we look forward to treating the patients, except in patients where you've got a couple of uh, angiographic criteria that make it very difficult. And those are patients who have both very long lesions and very calcified lesions. Usually if they're short calcified lesions, we can treat them. Usually if they're long lesions and not too calcified, we can treat them and get good results. When you marry the two of them together, those become very difficult, especially if they span multiple segments, such as the femoral SFA, as well as the popliteal artery, or even going into the uh, tibial vessels. So I would say the answer to your question is that if you have both long lesions and calcified lesions, those tend to be the ones that are the most difficult to treat and usually make for a tough day. So if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're kind of outlining what we would call task D lesions and almost D plus because you'd add in severely calcified task D lesions, right? That's right. So, you know, the task criteria over time, it was thought that initially A and B, you would go with endovascular treatment, C and D, as more reserved for surgery over time, as technology has improved, more divisive and available. We routinely treat C and often D as well. And you're absolutely right uh, that it's the task D plus that I'm talking about that make it very difficult in terms of endovascular treatment. 
I'm glad you pointed that out because I think I think you're exactly right. As a vascular surgeon, if you ask me who is most likely referred for femoral popliteal bypass in 2021, I would show you angiograms of people with long, heavily calcified CTOs in which any particular operator couldn't cross or couldn't create sufficient lumen gain. So let me ask you this, from a data perspective, is there much data on treatment of these long, heavily calcified lesions? Have they been studied before? You know, not, not in the same way as the reality study study these patients. So we'll get to that in just a bit, I'm sure. But have patients with long disease, we're talking about 20, 30 centimeter long lesions, longer, 40 centimeter long lesions, and severe calcification in whatever way you want to define the calcification. The combination of the two of those, those types of lesions have not been the subject of large multi-center studies. There may be anecdotal or small single center studies. Otherwise, they have not been studied well. These are patients that we don't want to treat uh, or don't. we hope we don't get them, I should say. But the reality is that we do get them, uh, but we don't have a good data set that we can look at to help guide us in terms of how to treat them. How do you treat them this day and age? Long, heavily calcified CTO, prior to reality data coming to fruition, how have you treated them historically? Maybe we can go through kind of over the last two decades how we've treated patients with uh, with complex femoropopteal disease. Initially, we had angioplasty alone, and we had a lot of recoil, and getting through total occlusions was tough. We didn't have reentry devices, some of the wires, techniques, et cetera, say two decades ago, aren't what they are right now. So we could treat short segments, treat them with angioplasty, and really that was it. With the advent of stents and long stents, and with the advent of the ability to uh, re-enter from the subintimal space, the ability to treat these patients with long stents became possible. And that was probably around 2004, 2005. And we started realizing that, hey, now we can treat these patients, uh, again, those with long disease, but not necessarily long and calcified disease. And we could get through technically in the short run and put stents in and get a great result at the end of the procedure. But what we started realizing shortly thereafter was these stents would occlude. And once these stents occluded, these patients were then very tough to treat. There weren't any really good endovascular options available, and they had to go to surgery, or sometimes there were no options available. And so right around that time, atherectomy became something that was uh, available for potentially the treatment of these patients with long, complex calcific disease. And some of us started to use atherectomy for treating these particular types of patients, and we started to get good results, but we didn't have any data telling us that this was the right thing to do. What were the long-term outcomes? We were getting better short-term outcomes in terms of the ability to get through these uh, and treat them with good results at the end of the procedure, but we didn't know what to expect long-term. In some cases, treat these patients with atherectomy without really knowing if this is the right thing to do or not, because we had no other good option. In other cases, we kept with the stenting option or the angioplasty option, knowing that there wasn't a good result six months down the line to be expected. So we were treating these patients with atherectomy, but we weren't really sure whether that was the right thing to do because there were, there were no good data to guide us. Absolutely. You've mentioned the reality trial. And as I've mentioned earlier, that was just recently presented and now in published form. Could you just take a minute to introduce us to the trial, the rationale for why it was done and the patients that were selected? So as I was mentioning to you, we are exposed to these patients with long complex disease. And over time, we've gone through various options uh, as a community of endovascular specialists of how to treat these patients. Once drug-coated balloons became available, we knew that in certain patients, even with long disease, drug-coated balloons worked. We knew that in certain patients with short calcific lesions, atherectomy first worked as a good option, but we didn't know 
what to do about patients with both long lesions and calcific disease. The hypothesis was that if we are able to treat the calcific portion of the disease with atherectomy and thereby improve the lumen size and debulk the lesion, and at the same time, we were also able to treat the patient with drug-coated balloon angioplasty and therefore get a better ability of drug to diffuse into the vessel wall, would there be an advantage of the two together? This idea was based on a hypothesis generated by a study called Definitive AR, which is more than a decade-old study, and the PI was uh, Professor Tomas Zeller. And in this study, which was a pilot study and a randomized study, there was an indication that among patients with long and calcific lesions, a strategy of atherectomy first followed by DCB was potentially better than DCB alone. But it was a small study, it was a pilot study, uh, and therefore was hypothesis generating only. But on the shoulders of that study, we wanted to explore whether these patients with lung disease and calcific disease treated with directional atherectomy and followed out to one year uh, would show a benefit of this strategy. So that was the underlying hypothesis and the reason why the reality study was started. Thanks for giving me the background on that. So definitive AR sort of planted the seed for this trial, but at the same time, you and I've already talked about how there really wasn't a benchmark set of data looking at long calcified femoral popliteal patients or lesions in the past. And at that point, it becomes almost a risky study, don't you think, to pick off what we are describing as the toughest lesions and then to study them without a control group. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a really good point. If the purpose of a study is to get regulatory approval or to get a device onto the market and show that it works well, that's yes, oftentimes those studies are designed to pick only the simplest patients so that the data is good from a regulatory standpoint and the device can come to the market. But that's not what the purpose of this study was. This, the purpose of this study was to study a strategy and to see whether the strategy was applicable to the worst types of patients or worst types of lesions that we can get. So yes, uh, as a result, uh, there was risk in this study because we didn't know if there would be good outcomes. As I mentioned, the definitive ER, there was a signal, but there was no significant difference between the two arms. So it was there was no assurance that this would result in a good outcome. And once you have these long lesions in a multi-center study with calcium, you could, you could do some harm. Patients could have done worse. And so there was some risk to it. Yet, I think Medtronic's to be commended because they noticed that this strategy was being used, yet it was being used without really any good data to back it up. And so therefore the study helped us understand whether or not what we were doing was the right thing to do or not, and whether or not it was safe. So when you were, when you were approached, Ravish, to join the reality trial, did you have any particular apprehension about it? I mean, I know you, my guess is you were, you were thrilled to be a part of a study that would bring about these challenging patients, but I'm curious what you thought we might learn from a trial like this. When, when we pick off and study specifically the longest, most calcified lesions, what did you expect to find? I can tell you, I was hoping to find that the strategy that we had been using in these types of patients was actually the right strategy, but I had no way of knowing for sure. There was risk associated. You have calcific lesions, you have directional atherectomy. There's a risk that some of the calcium could break off despite the use of an embolic protection device and cause more harm. And it was a complex study from an inclusion exclusion criteria standpoint. So it was something that required a lot of effort from the research team, but it was also a complex study in terms of the execution of the actual index procedure, because the initial design of the study required intravascular ultrasound at multiple points throughout the procedure, initially pre-treatment, 
and then after treatment with atherectomy, and then after treatment with drug-coated balloon angioplasty, and then at the end as well. So there were a number of hurdles in terms of just finding the right patients, the inclusion and exclusion criteria, but there was also a potential a long index procedure because of the need for intravascular ultrasound. That being said, there was good reason for that because we were trying to get as much data as possible from these patients so that we could learn and then use those data to understand how better to treat these patients in the future. So I would say the apprehension, I was excited about the study because we were going to finally study a group of patients who were being treated in a way that some of us had been treating them. The apprehension, I guess, was that it would be hard to find these patients with long, complex disease and who also met all the inclusion exclusion criteria. And the length of the case was potentially going to be more than what you would normally spend because of the addition of some of these features, such as intravascular ultrasound. And as we know, our days are long as it is. And then you add on these complex cases with additional features, and it makes for even longer days. But other than that, I was excited to see what the results would be. No, I was too. And, and I guess the, the audience should know I was a participant in that trial as well. And Clearly, it was a different type of trial design where we were we set out with some real challenges, uh, picking picking the hardest lesions to treat, and and yet I think obviously very valuable data to all of us because it gets to some of those challenging things that we see in practice to kind of hone in then on the types of patients that were included. If I'm not mistaken, uh, inclusion lengths for this particular trial were lesion lengths in the femoral popliteal segment of eight to 36 centimeters. It included CTOs longer than 10 centimeters. And then you had to have severe calcification on both sides of the, of the lesion. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So the lesion length had to be between eight and 36 centimeters, exactly as you said. Uh, CTOs had to be a minimum of 10 centimeters. And you had to have at least five uh, millimeters of bilateral calcium in order to be included in the study. And then after that, the amount of calcium was then graded by the PACS criteria. Now that the, the data is known, can you just take us through some of the, the key data points for one year as recently uh, presented? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, starting off first with the number of patients in the study, we had uh, 102 patients that were enrolled in the study, but 92 patients completed 12-month follow-up. As you can imagine, these uh, are very complex patients. They have lots of other comorbidities. Some patients were lost to follow-up. Others had other events, which did not allow them to come back for follow-up. So we had 92 patients at the end of one year on which our analysis is based. Of these 92 patients, all the other risk factors were there, hypertension, dyslipidemia, history of coronary artery disease, history of stroke, history of smoking, all the things that you would expect out of this group of patients. As I mentioned, the lesion length for inclusion was between 8 and 36 centimeters. And at the end of the day, once the results came out, uh, the mean lesion length was 17.9 centimeters. But among patients with chronic total occlusions, and 39% of patients had chronic total occlusions, the mean lesion length was longer, was about 22.5 centimeters. So really real-world disease. Of these patients, 86.2% had bilateral calcium. And 86.3% of patients had calcium both in the intima and the media. Uh, therefore, you had luminal calcification and you had uh, medial calcification as well. So 39% chronic total occlusions, 18 centimeter mean lesion length. Of the patients with chronic total occlusions, about 22.5 centimeter mean lesion length, 86.2% of patients with bilateral calcium, and 86% of patients with disease both in the media and in the intima, therefore intraluminal disease. Uh, the number of patients with PACS grade four calcification was 68%. So really the, the worst of the worst in terms of the types of lesions that were included in this study. 
Oh, absolutely. Because I mean, you're, you're talking about lesions. Like if we compare this data set to some of the data sets we've seen for drug coated balloon over the years, these lesions were basically two times as long or greater. And it wasn't just that severe calcification was mixed in amongst the cohort or in some cases excluded, but these were, these were all severely calcified patients. So quite a different data set for sure. So one-year outcomes are now known. Can you take us through those? Yeah, absolutely. So the one-year outcomes uh, in terms of freedom from clinically driven TLR uh, was 92.6%. So close to 93% of patients, once they were treated with this type of disease, did not come back for another revascularization procedure, clinically driven uh, at 12 months, which is really excellent. In terms of patency at the end of the follow-up period uh, at one year, uh, the 12-month patency as defined by duplex criteria, peak systolic velocity ratio of less than or equal to 2.4 was 76.7%. So again, patency at 12 months, 76.7%, really a very respectable number for the type of uh, patient population, type of lesions that we are looking at over here. So in terms of effectiveness, the, the patency and the clinically driven TLR, really excellent results. In terms of safety, same thing, excellent results. Uh, the patients did very well in terms of improvement from Rutherford uh, three symptoms down to Rutherford one symptoms. And in terms of safety at the end of one year, excellent results as well. The mean diameter stenosis uh, at the time of the procedure itself was 88.8%. Uh, post-directional atherectomy, the mean diameter stenosis was 40.4%. And the mean diameter stenosis, uh, uh, this is all core lab adjudicated, uh, after directional atherectomy and DCB was 28.1%. But what's very impressive here is that the provisional stenting rate or bailout stenting rate was 8.8%. Other studies have looked at long lesions, uh, such as some of the sub-studies done for drug-coated balloons and the, the impact long uh, subset, for example. Uh, and they had long lesions as well with good rates of patency at one year, but with between 40 and 45% need for provisional stenting. So think about it. In this case, you've got long lesions, complex lesions, CTOs, and good results at one year, but only with an 8.8% provisional stenting rate, which was really excellent, showing that the strategy of debulking first reduces the things that need require stenting, reduces, therefore, recoil, reduces dissection, and therefore, the need for provisional stenting uh, was much lower. Effectiveness was excellent, but not only was it excellent in terms of number, but it was also excellent because it required very low provisional stenting. No, absolutely. I appreciate your pointing out in your discussion pertaining to the stent rate, because that was one of the questions I had going into this trial. I think for many users of directional arthrectomy and drug balloon angioplasty, the point of combining these therapies is to maximize the chance of having a successful femoral popliteal intervention that's not dependent on stenting. And yet we know in the setting of severe calcium, if not atherectomy, then those patients are likely to require a stent. And if that's the case, then that the stent rate for those patients under other circumstances would perhaps approach 100% in the face of severe calcium. So to me, that was one of the, the major findings of, of this particular study is that you could drive that provisional stent rate under 10% in lesions otherwise you may have always been tempted to stand. Yeah, absolutely. And two points along those lines. Number one, 
when you stent these types of patients with long, heavily calcified disease, oftentimes the stent does not expand all the way, and that results in early restenosis or an occlusion, and those patients are then very hard to treat, especially if the stented segment is somewhere in the middle of the total occlusion. You oftentimes can't get into the stented segment. You get into the subintimal space around the stent, and then you're almost always going to be sending that patient for a femoral popular bypass graft. And reducing the number of options they have in the future. I think that's number one, very important. Number two, in other studies with long lesions and drug-coated balloons, where you have a 40, 45% rate of stenting, the question always comes up, well, what is it that's actually beneficial? Why are these patients getting good patency at one year? Is it because stents were used or is it because the drug-coated balloon was good or is it both? In this particular case, when you have only 8.8% provisional stenting and yet you have 76% patency at one year, you know that it's not because of stenting. The stenting is not driving the outcome here. It truly is the what you're doing at the index procedure in terms of debulking and then treating with anti-restonic therapy that's driving the right. outcome of one year. Right. You know, Ravish, I'm struck too by data that is now seven years old. But if, if we go back to the days of definitive LE, the original directional atherectomy data set, at one year, primary patency in that data set was 78%. Yet the lesions were less than half as long and severe calcium was excluded in that trial. So to me, when you make the comparisons, because obviously there's no, there's no comparison arm for these reality patients, but when you compare this trial back to the original definitive LE, you have to think that the drug-coated balloon, the impact balloon is part of the equation that allows the primary patencies to be within a single percentage point of each other. What are your thoughts on that? Do you agree? Yeah, I completely agree. I'm so glad you brought that up. And that's exactly right. You had less than eight centimeter lesions in definitive LE without severe calcification and 78% patency at one year. And now you've got mean 18 centimeter lesions, which by the criteria have to have severe calcification. And you have exactly the same patency at one year, despite the longer lesion lengths and the calcification. So it shows that if you treat with atherectomy first and add a drug-coated balloon, you get the same results despite having much, much worse lesions to start with. And to me, that really is uh, the essence of why the two of these work well together. You, you can take the worst lesions and you have data both from directional atherectomy alone, now with directional atherectomy plus DCB, showing that it's, it's a good strategy for these patients. Thanks, Ravish, for taking us through some of the, the key data points. Now that you have this data in front of you and you know that this can be an effective strategy and really minimize your stent utilization in the femoral popliteal segment, has this changed the way that you approach these patients when you, when you get them on the table? I was already treating patients with directional atherectomy around the time when definitive LE data became available. Been treating patients with drug-coated balloon angioplasty since those became available. Based on definitive AR, I'd been treating patients with a combination strategy, but not really knowing if that's the right thing to do. So what this has done for me is not necessarily increase the number of patients I treat with the strategy, but it's made me more confident that I'm doing the right thing for these patients. Excellent. While I have you, let me ask you two questions pertaining to how you did these cases in reality. My first question is technical, and that is, in what percentage of your cases in reality did you use a filter? I used a filter in 100% of patients in reality. If I remember correctly, it was mandated. And even if it wasn't mandated, once you're dealing with atherectomy, either in long segments or in calcific segments, the likelihood of embolization is very high, I would say 100%. And that's not a, a function of the type of device or a downside of the device. All arthrectomy devices 
will cause embolization. That's just the nature of atherectomy. And therefore, I think it's incumbent on us to protect those patients when we're treating patients or lesions that have a high risk of embolization. Given that reality was long lesions and calcified lesions, those two segments or subsets where there's a high risk of embolization, I did use uh, embolic protection in 100% of patients. I'm glad you brought that up, Ravish. In my participation in this trial, I obviously used a filter in 100% of the cases as well. But I think you bring up a really important point in addition, and, and that is these lesions tend to be embolic. You may not even use atherectomy, but the simple process of crossing the heavily, heavily calcified CTO or working in a particularly long lesion, calcification in and of itself, I think, is inherently embolization prone. And I think one of the challenges of this trial was that if you're only studying those types of patients, every single case represents an embolic potential. And whether you're using atherectomy or not, I think filter usage is, is wise. I also want to ask you this as it pertains to use of drug-coated balloon angioplasty in these cases, because some investigators would argue that heavily calcified lesions may not warrant or benefit from use of drug-coated products because of some early data that suggested it may just not work. So in your practice, do you feel like it's a valuable investment to use paclitaxel in these types of heavily calcified cases? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, I'm not sure we know 100% uh, on this, but uh, here are my thoughts. We have data, preclinical data, animal data, uh, histological data, and some human data as well. That's a, a very much quoted Finelli study, which shows that as the amount of calcification as looked at in quadrants in the femoral popular segment increases, the results from drug-coated balloon angioplasty as assessed by late loss get worse, suggesting uh, in totality, when you look at all these data, that as you have more and more calcium, the diffusion of the drug, antiretinotic drug, into the media at the adventitia becomes less, and therefore the utility of drug-coated balloon angioplasty becomes less. Now, combine that with the fact that when you have calcific lesions, you have more recoil and you have more dissections. The outcomes with DCB in calcific lesions are not as good as they are in non-calcific lesions. So it stands to reason then that treating with debulking and removing the calcium first would not only improve short-term outcomes with a reduction in recoil, reduction in dissection, reduction in bailout stenting, but also long-term outcomes because of better diffusion of drug into the media and the adventitia. As we talked about earlier, I think this study does show that that is the case because the difference between definitive LE outcomes and outcomes of reality are the same despite a longer and more complex lesion subset. Uh, so I think uh, it, it all comes together and it all makes sense. There's another smaller piece of data that is also very interesting. There was a study uh, published uh, a few years ago showing that with directional atherectomy, when you're cutting and if you have adventitia in the, in the histological seg segments that you remove, if you compare those patients where adventitia is removed as compared to those patients when, in which adventitia is not removed, and it's only intima, the outcomes in terms of one-year patency are far worse among patients in which there was adventitia removed with directional atherectomy, suggesting perhaps that by cutting into the adventitia, you're increasing the inflammatory cascade and increasing the risk of restenosis. In reality, in about half of the patients, we did look at histological sections and those were analyzed. And we found that even in those patients where adventitia was there in the histological sections, there was no difference in outcomes in terms of major adverse events and restenosis. So potentially because in this case, directional atherectomy was followed by drug angioplasty and that allowed the drug to then diffuse into the media and adventitia, thereby reducing the risk of restenosis. So this is really a hypothesis. 
But in my mind, it all kind of comes together. It, number one, it makes sense. There are preclinical and animal data, histological data, and uh, human data before this suggesting that if you have less calcium or if you remove the calcium, you get a better diffusion of drug. And you have clinical evidence now from this study suggesting the same thing. Going back to your question, does removal of calcium improve outcomes in terms of the efficacy of drug-coated balloons? I, I think the answer is yes. Do you think there are any instances now where you wouldn't use drug-coated balloon? Because it seems to me that we now have data from reality that suggests that even in the setting of severe calcium, it's likely to be beneficial. Yeah, you know, as, as we all know, a few years ago, there was a concern that maybe Pacotaxel increased the risk of mortality. There was a meta-analysis uh, from Katsanos and, and colleagues that came out a few years ago and led to a lot of work in trying to ascertain whether or not that was a true finding or whether that was not a true finding. And I think more and more we are realizing that there does not appear to be a mortality signal with the use of Pacotaxel in the femoropopteal segment. And so with that behind us, I don't really have any other case uh, areas or clinical scenarios or patients in which I would be reluctant to use drug-coated balloons if uh, that is what it warranted clinically. Thank you, Ravish, for going over some of the key one-year data of reality. I'd now like to shift the focus a little bit. We've talked about the risks that were incurred by doing a trial focused on such difficult lesions. And the concern, obviously, would be that complications would be higher in this subset of patients. So if, if you don't mind, would you just take us briefly through the complications that were seen in this trial and some of the data behind those? Yeah, absolutely. As you rightly said, as the lesion subset becomes more and more complicated, in this case, length and calcification, the risk uh, becomes more as well. In this case, there was a risk of crossing the lesion, uh, long total occlusions in some cases with calcification, higher likelihood of getting to the subintimal space, and then using directional atherectomy in the subentomal space potentially, and also the potential risk of embolization that occurs. So in, in this trial, the perforation rate was 3.1%, uh, or three out of 98 patients. And all three of those were treated successfully with endovascular means using a stent, and none of them had to go to surgery. There was no limb loss associated with these patients. There was no adverse bleeding outcome associated with them. All three were treated with endovascular means at the time of the procedure. Uh, dissections greater than grade C occurred in 14 out of 98 patients, or 14.3% of patients. And of these, uh, provisional stents were implanted in 8.8% of patients, as I mentioned earlier, or 9 out of 102 patients. Uh, distal embolization occurred in 11 out of 86 patients, or 12.8%. Now, this is a little bit perplexing to me because we used embolic protection, but um, even embolic protection devices uh, are not perfect. They're of a predetermined shape and diameter. And sometimes the diameter of the device and the diameter of the vessel, there may be a mismatch, or the shape of the vessel and the embolic protection device, there may be a mismatch, resulting in malapposition. And so small particles may get through or around or through the embolic protection device, most likely just getting around it. Given that directional atherectomy was being done in long calcific areas and a large amount of debris was probably being released, a significant amount was captured probably in the nose cone of the device, but other uh, debris was released. A lot of it was captured in the amalgam protection device, but despite that, in 11 out of 86 patients, there was uh, some embolization despite the use of an embolic protection device. Of those patients, five out of 11 were treated with aspiration only, and that was sufficient. And in one out of 11, a stent was required. But in none of these patients was there limb loss or surgery required as a result of distal embolization. 
That's certainly an important point. I think this data depicts the fact that even in the worst of the lesions that we treat, complication rates may be higher than what we ordinarily expect, but that you can still have an assurance that you can complete these cases successfully with endovascular means. And that even if you do have one of these complications, by no means does it typically turn into a surgical case or procedure. Yeah, and what makes me realize is that imagine if embolic protection had not been used at 100% of cases, then given the amount of debris that is being released, that the outcomes would have been far worse. And so oh, absolutely. I have to emphasize when these patients have been treated, embolic protection is really mandatory. Right, no matter, no matter how you're going to approach the case. Let me ask you this, Ravish, I know you're, you've been heavily involved in this particular trial, and you've probably presented it in numerous venues to this point. What are some of the concerns, the criticisms that you've encountered in regards to either how the trial was done or some of the trial outcomes? Are there particular themes that you've begun to see? Yeah, you know, so there's, I guess, in terms of the trial design, probably two things. One is sample size. And the second is that it's a single arm trial. Uh, I think both are valid. In terms of sample size, 400 patients were screened in order to enroll 102. And so this was a very tough trial to enroll in because of the significant inclusion exclusion criteria that were involved. And so while the sample size was not as large as maybe originally planned, it still took a long time to get that number of patients enrolled and represents a subset of patients in whom data previously were lacking. And so I still think it adds value in terms of uh, what we know and uh, how we treat our patients. The second criticism in terms of design is that it was not randomized. And I think that also is a valid criticism. While it's never an apples to apples comparison, and you always have to have that caveat, I think there are other data subsets out there in which you can do somewhat of a, I'm not even sure I would use the word comparison, but you can look at the two and realize that in these types of patients, uh, the outcomes you had here are much better than we would have expected in other trials uh, where maybe this combination strategy was not used. So another criticism potentially would be that the the primary patency at a a year of about 77% is not as high as some of the metrics that are being put up by drug-coated balloon technologies, obviously in different lesion settings. But I guess it does beg the question, could the primary patency have been better at a year, do you think, if the provisional stent rate would have been higher? It's a great question. You know, I, I don't know. I don't necessarily think so because I think provisional stenting in most cases in other studies where long lesions were studied and there was a high rate of provisional stenting was because of dissection and the need to treat the dissection. In this case, because of atherectomy and the modification of the plaque, dissection rates were low and therefore stenting was not needed. So I'm not sure it would have added any benefit. It would have just been extra metal put in there for no real reason. I think while you're, you're right that we've become used to now patency rates in the high 80s, which is great, some cases low 90s, but it's important to keep in mind that those studies did not include these types of patients. This is an entirely different subset of patients. So we can't expect the high 80s and low 90s for these types of patients. I think that uh, yeah. as you had earlier of definitive LE is a more appropriate comparison. I completely agree on your point about these patients and these lesions being a unique subset it's probably unrealistic to expect patencies in the 85 to 90% range if you're only going to study those lesions and those really long lesions. Do you think, Ravish, there's obviously a lot of interest in pairing drug-coated balloon therapies with atherectomy devices? And in 2021, we've never had more potential combinations of these devices. So how transferable or applicable is this data, do you think, to other device combinations? same lesions, but different combinations of drug-coated balloons or atherectomy devices? Yeah, that's a great question. So 
Answer is, I don't know. I'd love to find out. And the reason I say that is I think that's kind of where we need to focus some of our energies moving forward is, is comparing strategies of therapy. Now, we've done a very good job initially a couple of decades ago in getting approval for stents that were biliary stents and getting indication for iliacs. Okay, So those are initial types of trials we did. And then we had new therapies in which we wanted to show efficacy of those trials in treating various types of patients. We've done well with that. Then now we've got trials showing combination therapy and seeing how those combinations work out. I think what we need to do more of as a, as a community, as a society with physicians and, and industry is now start exploring strategies. A strategy of directional atherectomy with DCB followed as compared to maybe another type of atherectomy with DCB, or maybe add on another third group to that, which is maybe stenting with certain types of stents that are designed for calcific lesions, or maybe another arm as well. Maybe a drug, drug looting stents could be another arm of that. And maybe it's too complex to have them all in one study, but various combinations thereof. So I, I don't know the answer about whether or not other atherectomy devices plus DCB would result in the same outcomes. One could imagine that because directional atherectomy results in more debulking as a consequence of the way that these devices are made, that maybe more debulking results in better outcomes, but we don't know that for sure. Uh, maybe better debulking results in better diffusion of drug, maybe results in lower risk of recoil, lower risk of dissection, lower risk of provisional stenting. Those are all hypotheses, but I can't say for sure until those, those are actually studied. And then again, comparing this idea of atherectomy plus DCB with other strategies, I think would be a great direction to head in so that we can start getting more data-based approaches to treating our patients rather than what we see right now, which is a very heterogeneous treatment algorithm, depending on who's treating them, where you are, what their background is, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, we don't really have a standardized approach to these kind of patients. I think that's a very useful approach to going forward in the femoral popliteal landscape. There are a lot of different competing strategies that are out there and short of some of these focused head-to-head comparisons. Without those, we'll never have explicit answers to some of these tough questions. So I certainly appreciate your insight on all of these topics tonight, Ravish. And I will conclude this session with one final question to you. And I think it plays off exactly what you were just discussing. If you had to design the next directional atherectomy and drug-coated balloon angioplasty trial, what would that look like? What specific question would you try and answer? Great question. So I would say two, and both both of them you've already touched on. I think one would it would be interesting to do a, a study comparing a strategy of directional atherectomy plus uh, impact with maybe another type of atherectomy, say rotational, with another DCB. Right? I think that would be very interesting to see. Is this a class effect or is there something more unique to the devices? Number two, I think another interesting study would be in similar types of patients as in reality, a strategy of comparing directional atherectomy plus DCB versus stenting with a bare metal stent, but maybe a stent that's designed for calcific lesions, the Sapera, for example, and a third arm of drug loading stents. I think that would be very interesting because then you have three different approaches to complex lesions where we really don't know what the right answer is in majority of our patients. So I think those two types of comparative trials would really uh, shed a lot of light and help us figure out as a society of physicians what the right thing to do is in, in these patients with complex disease. And you can imagine the types of subset analyses and, and the amount of learning that could come out of these kinds of studies in addressing various subsets that we come across on a daily basis. I think those are two fabulous suggestions, Ravish. I hope everyone listening today, including industry, supports the types of trials and comparisons uh, that you've suggested here, because clearly those types of trials that you've uh, just relayed 
would provide a lot of additional valuable detail to all of us as we treat this difficult segment. So once again, Ravish, thank you for joining us today. I appreciate your time and insight on all these questions and for taking us through this reality data subset. And lastly, I would like to thank Medtronic for sponsoring this podcast and for all of you tuning in today. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. Always a pleasure. And uh, thank you to Medtronic as well. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Cath Lab Conversations. Thank you again to Dr. Scott and Dr. Sutcher. We would also like to thank Medtronic for sponsoring this podcast. For more information on the Reality Clinical Study, visit www.medtronic.com slash reality study. Thank you for listening.